Ottawa Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Today's episode is hosted by Ian Brown, feature writer for the Globe and Mail, and the best-selling author of 60, The Beginning of the End or the End of the Beginning, and The Boy in the Moon, A Father's Search for His Disabled Son. In just a moment, he'll introduce us to David McFarlane, author of the classic memoir, The Danger Tree, and his latest publication, Likeness, Father's Sons, A Portrait. Here's Ian Brown in conversation with David McFarlane. David McFarlane has long been considered one of Canada's very best writers. His journalism has won multiple prizes. His family memoir, The Danger Tree, was acclaimed all over the world. His novel, Summer Gone, was shortlisted for the Giller Prize and won the Books in Canada First Novel Award. His novel, The Figures of Beauty, won the Brassani Literary Prize. And his new book, Likeness, Father, Sons, A Portrait, is bound to gather all that praise and more. It's a thoughtful, funny, and enormously moving account of a painting and of the city and the lives it depicts, McFarland's, his father's, and that of his son, Blake, whose five-year losing battle against leukemia took place while his father was writing the book. Hello, David McFarland. Hello, Ian. I, you know, I, I know you, but it's still a huge pleasure. And I have to say uh, a real privilege to have a chance to talk to you like this about likeness. Uh, it's a brilliant uh, book, very entertaining, very readable, but complicated to talk about because it has so many uh, layers. So uh, maybe we should start at the beginning with the portrait. Can you uh, briefly describe it? Sure. Um, the portrait is by John Hartman. Uh, and as it turned out, it was it became one of a series that he did of, I think, 41 writers. Uh, these are, for the most part, big oil paintings um, with, uh, well, as you know, being one of them, with the, the writer in the foreground, um, or um, in my case, it sometimes seemed to me as if Hamilton, which was in the background, was really the subject of the painting, and I was just kicking around in the foreground. But at, but at any rate, it's a portrait of me and of the city of Hamilton, um, and by almost by accident, it ended up in our living room um, for the, again, almost by accident, for what turned out to be the duration of Blake's illness. So it was a presence in our house, a rather enormous presence um, uh, during the time that Blake was sick. Uh, and so it was part of that period of time in our 
family's history. So that's five years, but when it first arrives, I mean, these are big paintings. How'd that go over with the family? <laughs> uh, well, uh, um, it's an odd thing to have a gigantic portrait of yourself in your living room. Um, and so my wife, Janice, was, um, 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 what would be the right word? She was, uh, she had complicated emotions about this painting in our living room. What was often funny is, was that when guests came, uh, you know, you usher a guest into the living room to give them a glass of wine or something, and your host has an enormous, and I mean enormous, it was way too big for our living room, um, has an enormous portrait of himself. So it was quite a conversation starter for, for sure. Um, but it's a wonderful painting and it became more wonderful to me the more I looked at it and I had a lot of time to look at it. And so one of the things about the book, uh, one of the subjects of the book is living with a work of art. It's an entirely different experience than living with a reproduction, however good that reproduction might be. A painting has a kind of, um, it has a visceral presence in an interior. And because this painting was, in, was Hamilton, and because my father grew up in Hamilton, my grandmother grew up in Hamilton, um, Hamilton is a big part of my psyche. And uh, so the painting was a um, portal into into those memories and and you grew up in hamilton uh, as as well so so when when did you start writing about it or when did you want to start writing about it how did that evolve um well you know when i was when i was at university um there was a period of time when i tried to get published in various like literary magazines and whatnot um with uh, with some frustration, and so I remember I lived in uh, an apartment in uh, Cabbage Town, and the view from my window of my room—I shared the apartment with a number of other uh, students. The view from my room was of a brick wall, like about three feet away, a brick wall. And I remember sitting at my desk and thinking. Well, if nobody is going to ask you to write about anything, you're going to write about this fucking brick wall. And so I did. I sort of, thought, you know, it, you know, became an exercise: how to write about a brick wall. Um, and so this was what happened with uh, with likeness. I was, um, as can happen, I was spinning in circles a bit with publishers about what book I was going to write next. And finally, in almost in frustration, I thought you know what, I'm going to write about what's right in front of me. Um, and so it turned out that the painting presented what was right in front of me in a literal way, but also my childhood, my upbringing, my background was a subject that was right in front of me, um, as was, you know, our son Blake's illness. Uh, and so I set out to write about this um, place, Hamilton, Ontario, in a time, um, I was born in 52, so we're really talking, my period of time there was kind of 50, 60s, 70s a bit. And um, that period of time, which struck me as being 
so ordinary, like practically numbingly ordinary, the more I looked at that period of time and the more I learned about it and the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that it was an absolutely miraculous moment in human history. That to be white, middle-class, living in a place like Hamilton, Ontario, where the industry was churning away like crazy, where there were jobs. That was an extraordinary moment. Never before in the history of mankind and probably never again will that kind of affluence for that group of people um, be in place like that. So, you know, French historians, economic historians refer to the the, the, the 30 years, the 30, uh, les trente glorieuses, the 30 years where in the Western economy, things were actually really working, you know, jobs, uh, no plagues, that was a good thing, no wars for us in, in Canada, on and on and on and on and on, this kind of affluence that we thought was perfectly normal, um, but that was actually extraordinary. And and no fear. Uh, in fact, as as you point out, uh, of children running around and having a good time and 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 living a kind of quote wild life in the in the uh, pleasant semi suburban life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it, what fascinates me is that you you as you're writing this, you are also talking about it and reading it uh, to Blake. Uh, sometimes when he's spending long stretches of time in the hospital, I mean, is that something you'd normally done? I mean, uh, was this a new a new habit? This this and and those those conversations lead to, I guess, discussions about about your privilege. And it sounds like Blake had some fairly um, strict ideas about, about about this privilege you had grown up in. Yeah, as I think is true of 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 that generation, um, Blake and our daughter, Caroline, um, you know, they view the world with, um, uh, you know, with a very different set of eyes than we did when we were their age. And um, I remember, um, I mean, it can't be quite this rosy, but I remember being, you know, very, very optimistic about my future um, when, when I was just starting out, for instance. Um, it seemed like there were all kinds of possibilities for a writer in this country. And um, so their, their approach to the future, very, very different um, from, from mine. And so it, it wasn't uncommon um, for Blake to um, not be exactly bowled over by <laughs> stuff that I was writing. Um, uh, <laughs> Again, I think a generational distinction, like he saw things and Caroline sees things in my writing that um, speaks to my age, to my class, to um, my perspective on things that they might not necessarily agree with. So there was a kind of slightly contentious um, exchange that Blake and I had about stuff that I was working. In part, it had to do with the fact that um, that writing a book seemed like a fairly, and you know, I might as well have been carving stone. It was like, you know, a, an ancient technology because Blake was interested in film and sound and all kinds of things. And right. so um, 
Uh, yeah, so Blake was not, so th there was a kind of debate, there's a debate that runs through likeness where Blake questions um, my assumptions about, about certain things. And so that becomes part of the, becomes part of the text. And indeed, sort of, sorry, to answer your question um, a bit more fully, a lot of the book has this idea of the layering of stories. So it's not just a story is told, a story is told about the person who, who told the story. Um, and, um, and that I think comes to some degree from the idea of the painting, because I was fascinated by the way that John um, layers uh, colors, uh, textures um, uh, as, he's, as he's creating a painting. Well, this raises all, all the subjects I, I want, and many of the subjects I want to talk to you about. Um, so you say in the book at one point that, that the painting let you remember things, um, which was in part a way to stop worrying about uh, about Blake, um, but but also that these memories of, of Hamilton are not uh, precisely depicted in the portrait, that they're kind of hidden, you know, behind your head, but they're they're implicit, um, but that they nevertheless brought out uh, these memories. Um, you know, Hartman calls this, like, as you say, the, the, the painting's imaginative space, but it sounds like you are almost having a Proustian experience that, that you were looking at the painting and, and things were coming to mind that you hadn't thought about in years. That's correct. And in part, well, in large part, that has to do with uh, John's genius, John Hartman's genius, um, because I didn't direct him in any way um, as to how this painting would be constructed or what its um, visual priorities would be. Of course not. No, he's a he, he's an artist with his own view of things. But but when he produced the painting, uh, among its many surprises for me was um, was the fact that it so captured my own perspective on Hamilton, where I grew up and uh, where my parents' house uh, was uh, until their deaths, in fact, was directly below the Niagara Escarpment. And so the slope of the Niagara Escarpment, which was a kind of wooded, um, you know, slightly wilderness kind of area, was where we played. And so growing up, looking from the escarpment down over the city of Hamilton was my kind of childhood view of the city. And lo and behold, this is the perspective that John captures. In part, it, that's because that's the perspective John often uses. He's well known for his kind of aerial map-like perspectives of, of cities particularly, or the shore of Georgian Bay. Um, but it just so happened that in this instance, it was as if he had found some old photograph in, an, in an, a photo album that I hadn't seen in a long, long time. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, right, of course, that's Hamilton. And then it continued from there. The colors, the autumn colors that he captured were absolutely part of my memory of growing up in that city. And so partly just because the, I think at one point in the book, I say the the portrait, I can't tell whether the portrait actually looks like me because I don't really have a good sense of what I look like. But I can say 
that it feels like it has the same memories I do. Um, and so that be, so it became this kind of, um, well, as I say, portal into my memories and also quite an elastic portal in a certain sense, because as you point out, it, this, these streets and houses are not um, sharply portrayed. So the imaginative space, which is what John Hartman talks about, is what the viewer, in this case me, brings to the brings to the painting. Yeah. Well, in addition to telling the story in layers, as you say, by going back and retelling the story with different from a different point of view or with uh, added details, that you also tell the story by skipping around, um, and it, it, not just geographically, but in time the present, the past, uh, to your father, then to Blake, then back to you. Why did you tell the story that way? Well, <clears throat> I think in part because I think that's the way we are. Um, that's the way we think, uh, or, or maybe I should just say that's the way I think, but I, I, th I think that human consciousness exists on um, different planes simultaneously. Um, the most obvious ones being um, questions of time. We're thinking about the past as we're projecting into the future, as we're living in the present. And all of these things are working in our consciousness all the time. Um, this is particularly true, I think. Well, it's true as you grow older um, because for obvious reasons, the past becomes more and more important. And so you try to find a way to um, make the past more than just a kind of souvenir that you drag along behind you. You want it to be part of who you are. And then beyond that, I think it becomes even more um, part of who we are when, when, you're, when you're grieving the loss of someone who now exists in the past. Um, in a certain sense. So, um, so suddenly this layering of time becomes not a sort of um, artificial construct put together to be, to be artful or something. It's actually, I think, a reflection of, of how we deal with the great mystery of, of, of time. Um, and so there's a, one of the recurrent stories in the book in likeness um, has to do with um, a humorous story that, that Blake enjoyed hearing from time to time. I, I was just <laughs> going to ask about the golf game. Yeah. And it has to do with, uh, it has to do with the story that sort of leaked out to our children when, when they were perhaps a little bit too young to hear it, but nonetheless, it became part of the family lore. And that was uh, on the occasion uh, when I first took LSD, um, which again has a connection to the painting because the slope of the escarpment was where my friend and I went for the night while we were experience, having this psychedelic experience, um, which was wonderful, wonderful, great experience. The only problem was that I had forgotten that, <laughs> that I was playing golf with my father. Uh, the only time in my life I ever played golf with my father um, at 7.30 the following morning. It was a big deal because you, your mother was upset, you rightly, your mother was upset that your father had never been invited to play golf by 
his father. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously like a big step. Well, it was one of those things where actually, I don't think my father cared that much about it. And I don't think I cared that much about it. But because my mother cared about it, my father and I find ourselves on the golf course at 7.30 in the morning. Unbeknownst to my father, I'm still on LSD, which um, is a sort of, you know, curious twist to the story of playing golf with your with your father. Blake found this story very amusing, um, uh, naturally. Um, but the thing in the story, it, it turned out fine. You know, I, I played golf okay, believe it or not. But the thing that, that baffled me, that I could not deal with, that was beyond my capacity, was I could not keep track of the score. Um, so of my score. So after the first hole, my father is standing on the green and he takes a little score pad and he said, so what do you shoot? <laughs> and I have no idea, not, not a clue. I could have had a hole in one. I could, it, I could have been 35 strokes. I didn't, I really didn't know. And so my father was a little puzzled that I seemed to you know, draw such a blank. And then when this happened again and again, and then finally, I was saying to myself, as we would begin a hole, you have to remember what's going on here. And then I would, so by about the sixth hole, my father knew that something was up, but, but he didn't make a big deal of it. He just, he just helped me keep, <laughs> helped me keep score. Um, so so that, that inability to keep um, uh, sequence in order was the kind of joke of the golf game. But then it becomes the sort of um, leitmotif, I guess, of the, of the, of the book, that uh, we don't keep things in order in our, in our conscious understanding of time. Yeah. Well, you also say that that was the longest conversation you ever had with your father, who was a, you know, a, a famously silent guy. But but you that 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 score conversation was the longest conversation. It, it, do you wish you'd had more of them with him? And 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 you know, subsequently, was that something you set out to? Oh yeah, yeah. Your, I think that life? I think. Well, I think probably all fathers, you know, probably wish that they had you know more conversations with their children um all parents i i should say um and um you know i i say in the book at the end of the golf game uh because it was it was that time um i probably didn't hug my father and i probably didn't hug i have no real memory of i guess i must have at some point hugged my father but i can't really remember it. It wasn't something that we did naturally. And so I kind of regret that kind of that kind of thing. But of course, even even if you set out to to be the parent who is going to hug their children and who is going to talk to their children and whatever happens, you're going to wish that you did you did more of it. Um, so it, it sort of wasn't a point of sadness with my father when I was growing up because it was just in a way kind of the way things were. Um, but yeah. Well, the, and in fact, you end up, uh, and I, what to me is one of the most harrowing scenes in the in the book, uh, and and again, a, a repeated scene. You end up hugging Blake and to help him when when he's sick to, 
to, to help him not be in pain. It's just, it's, it's hard to even describe. Uh, that, that must have been difficult to write about. Well, there were, yeah. I mean, there were, it, it's funny because people ask that. And yes, it was difficult. There are things in the book that, that are difficult. In, in a way, though, not. It's an odd, I found writing the book was, was um, the conversation with Blake runs throughout the book. Blake's, Blake questions things that I read to him, but also his um, consciousness, if I could put it that way, was, um, was, was with me. He was like, a, you know, on my shoulder as I was writing the book. And he was, um, and I would always be wondering whether he would like this or not like this. So there was something a little bit, um, um, you know, the year of magical thinking about the duration of, of writing the book. And so even though passages in the book that are, are sad, um, like the passage that you just cite, um, I don't remember it being difficult to write um, for the reasons that I've just described, because whatever I was writing, I was kind of writing in a strange sort of way in partnership with Blake. So it was all kind of, I won't say fun, but it was a, a, it was a collaboration. I often wondered if if Blake's challenges to you, uh, you know, over over privilege, over making things too languorous, uh, you know, given his love of horror films and and all that. I often wondered whether whether he was in some way editing you uh, or you know helping you along um, as you wrote. And, and it also reminded me, you know, C. Uh, C. S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories. You know, he famously um, said that. What surprised him about grief uh, was a how lonely it was, and b how much it felt like fear. And and you say you find it at one point you find you find grief futile uh, and frustrating. Um, but in both cases, of course, the, the grief itself produces has produced in in uh, Lewis's case a beautiful book, and in your case, this astonishing book. Well. Thank you. That's lo lo lovely to hear. Um, uh, yeah, grief is a really odd thing um, for me. I'm sure for everyone, odd, and in, in part because most people, I think, are so inured against it. Um, one just um, imagines, and in, this is part of the, having a privileged background. One just imagines that you're going to somehow avoid it all your life. Um, you know, your child isn't going to end up being washed up on a beach in the Mediterranean. That's somebody else's child. Um, but when it comes to call, um, it calls, you know, in a very, very serious way. And the only good thing I can say about it is that it suddenly you are part of, um, you know, the human race. Um, most people are dealing with sadness like this all the time. Um, and it's silly to imagine that, that, that we're not. Um, you know, the, something that we've heard a lot during the pandemic is be kind to people because you don't know what they're going through. And pandemic or not, I think maybe that was the lesson that I learned um, with Blake was that often I see people on the street 
um, who um, I can tell are sick and in some way are dealing with some kind of cancer or something. And I suddenly know more clearly than I did before what they're going through. See health, healthcare workers on the street. We, you know, we live downtown, so it's not uncommon to see, see them in their, you know, their blue outfits or green outfits kind of going out for lunch and stuff. And in a way that I didn't understand before, I know what's going on in those hospitals um, all the time, 24 hours a day. So it's, it's grief becomes kind of a whole complicated jumble of things. So, um, uh, and you don't want to be buried by it. You don't, you know, Blake, I think the nice thing about grieving someone like Blake is that Blake would have very little patience for moping around and weeping because we are experiencing, we who are alive are experiencing you know, what he so wanted to experience. Um, so, um, you know, and, and the other thing about, about Blake was that he was really, really not sentimental about things. And as he became sicker and as his mortality became clear, clearer to him, he developed a real, um, almost anger um, at sentimentality. And so in a way, um, writing a book about, or largely about um, the death of a son, the challenge was to write one that, that, that wasn't sentimental, that, you know, where Blake wouldn't go, ah, that's ridiculous. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you succeeded in that. Um, do, do you still have the painting? Uh, no, it was, the painting is actually, I'm actually not sure where it is right now. I think it might still be at the McMichael Gallery. It, there was a show at the McMichael Gallery of all of the writers right. um, that opened. A and great then, show. And, I, I, I should insert, uh, despite my, my presence in it, it is, it is a great, great show. It's really, it's really an interesting show. And, and I think I, I can say this as a subject of one of the paintings. It's, it's really interesting in its collectivity. Um, in fact, it's, it's really fun to see those portraits all together. Um, at any rate, I think it was, and then it's to tour um, Canada. And I think the tour, if, if the tour is what it was originally going to be interrupted by COVID, but now postponed, it ends up at um, Canada House in, in Trafalgar Square, I, be, I believe. Um, uh, Sorry, there was a point I was going to make about this. Uh, oh, oh, so yes. So the, so the question arose about whether the, the painting, we were going to actually buy the painting. I had become very attached to the painting. Um, and, it, and, it, and I was quite, um, it didn't bother me that I had a giant painting of myself in our, in our living room. Uh, but Janice wasn't so sure. And, and finally came down to, we had to make a decision. And, Janice said that the painting had been in our house during a particularly sad time in our family and it and she didn't want it to be in our house because that's what it meant to her and so it's not in our house it's it's somewhere else um, but these were reasons that very particular to Janice and I have to say reasons that both John Hartman and his um, his dealer Nicholas Mativier respected absolutely so that was so anyway it's somewhere else do you miss it 
Well, I do miss it because, you know, when my, when my mother died, um, we, meaning my siblings and I, we sold the house where we had grown up. Um, and I resisted that to some extent. I tried to sort of figure out whether there was any way that we could hold on to that property. Um, not so much because of the house itself, but because of the pool and what the pool meant to me. And anyway, that didn't work out. And so in a way, the painting was a way of holding on to the property. Um, the, the back of my parents' house, the pool, the, it just brought all that world back to me. So yeah, I do kind of miss the painting in the same way that I miss my parents' house. Yeah, well, you you write about that. You know, you say you began to forget your dad almost as soon as he retired because, the, you know, that change in that reliable routine of your dad, he was an ophthalmologist in your case, and, um, the, the, that you worried about, about forgetting him. Uh, do you... Well, it was, you know, he... It, it happened partly because out of a question of just needing to identify him with my children and uh, with uh, nieces and nephews and whatnot, because of course they referred to him as um, granddad. And so almost automatically you find yourself, instead of calling, just instead of vocally saying dad, you say granddad. And then over time, he becomes this kind of retired, older, gentle, quiet guy. Um, and I found myself forgetting about the, you know, rather dynamic doctor who was operating at three different hospitals and who was running around all the time to emergencies and all that sort of stuff that, that was part of our, of our growing up. I think like you, I, I worry a lot about forgetting things, people, um, not just because I'm getting older, but because I worry about forgetting them in their absence. Do you, do you worry or fear forgetting Blake? Oh, yeah, I think that's a real, um, I mean, I don't know, but I, but I guess it's a real common thing among people who have lost a loved one, um, is that you worry that um, the details that you took for granted inflections of voice, gesture, whatnot, um, are, are going to vanish. Um, and also specific memories might vanish because one of the things that happens when Blake um, was uh, 29 when he died. So there's a lot of time, there's a lot of memories there. And I realize sometimes I've sort of forgotten whole chunks of time. Like, you know, I can't remember anything from his grade seven to his grade nine or something, you know, like big. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, there you go. <laughs> we'll all be forgotten, I guess, before very long. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a question of, again, it's this, it's this thing about how do you keep someone who isn't here uh, in your life in a meaningful way so not just in a sentimental way but in a kind of living your life going about life appreciating things and and again blake is a pretty good um ally to have in that regard because you know many many times i have sort of 
said to myself, this view, however ordinary it might be, is um, a view that Blake would, would love to have. And so I should absorb it, take it in, enjoy it, appreciate it as, as much as possible, or this person, or this gathering of friends, or this, all these things that we take for granted, I sometimes filter it through um, what it would be like to have it taken away. Mm. Which I guess is something we've learned, everybody's learned to a certain extent about, you know, it's, COVID, it's odd that COVID kind of, for me, came on, for our family, came on the heels of Blake's death, because it kind of feels in a way like a similar experience that now things that we might have taken for granted before we don't take for granted anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's a, and that's a complicated subject. I, you've almost answered what was my last question. Throughout likeness again and again, um, you write about light. Uh, which is, of course, another element that uh, gets brighter, but also uh, fades. Uh, you write about the light in Hartman's portrait. You write about the light you remember in Hamilton coming off the pool in your parents' backyard when you were uh, young. And, of course, you write about the light that comes off certain people that you love, you know, off, off your father, um, off Blake's mother, um, and, and off your mother, and of course, off Blake. And you, you write, as always, I ended up wondering where that light is. It was so real for so long, it can't just be gone. I guess, in, uh, probably too simplistically, I, I want to ask you, where does it go? And, and can you get it back? I mean, you've just talked about seeing the world through the eyes of your now absent son, and that has helped you bring it alive again, bring the narrative alive, give it energy, you know, bring it to the off the page, so to speak. Um, but I, I guess I want to say, where does it go? Can you get it back? And if you can get it back, how do you get it back? Well, you're right. Light was a a huge preoccupation in in writing likeness and and in part from the very beginning because it it i think my first questions to john hartman um had to do with with how you you paint light and it grew out of a comment he made i i called him to i forget to ask him something and he just mentioned to me that he had spent days and days and days in the studio trying to paint the light above the pool so he wasn't painting like the reflections in the trees, or he was actually painting the light. And that, I thought, wow, how do you, where do you even begin to, to paint light? Um, and um, I started thinking about that and thinking about this, that this light that we take so much, much for granted, often, unless it's spectacular, like a sunset or something, nobody sort of like, Nobody looks like the room that I'm in, my office. I, I, I rarely think to myself, wow, this is fantastic light. But, but actually it is fantastic light. It's amazing in all kinds of, of ways and complex. And it's one of the things about living with a painting where you realize that it changes as the light in the room changes, as the hour of the day changes. It has a whole 
different personality in the afternoon that it has in the morning. And so light became um, important to me. And it also became important to me because of, um, uh, as represented by photographs, um, the light that photographs captures. And it was, and it's something that still, um, you know, I can be fairly um, collected about Blake's death, but photo, old photographs just slay me. I can't deal with them, you know, there's an, a wall full of albums um, in the room next door, but, and I never look at them because uh, I just can't um, handle it. In the same way, this is a bit weird, but um, in the same way that there's a basket of consolation notes um, that we receive, letters and things that we receive from people after Blake's death, and I can't read them. Um, so these are odd things that kind of, I mean, maybe eventually I'll read them, but um, I haven't yet been able to read them. So these are odd um, 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 evocations um, of, of a dead person. Um, and it struck me so much that, that, uh, that death is, um, um, uh, it may not be the end of light, um, I wouldn't presume to know, um, but it's the end of the light of the world that we love. It's the end of the way light looks in Hamilton, Ontario on an autumn afternoon or um, on the shore. You know, it's, it's the, the end of that light. And so I found myself really paying attention to, to light and how to portray it, how to describe it. And I began to realize that other writers have sort of wrestled with this. Um, um, I mentioned Virginia Woolf um, in To the Lighthouse and one of her characters, like John Hartman, wrestles with how do you paint light? And then for me, there's the silly notion of, um, I mean, silly in terms of actual physics, but where does light go? If there was, if there is an image of two young kids playing somewhere that was taken 30 years ago, where, where has that light gone? It must go somewhere. It must still exist in some way. And presumably it does if we can travel faster than the speed of light and all that sort of stuff. But, but it's, um, uh, in my simplistic terms, it's just one of those, one of the reasons that um, I can't bring myself to look at photo, old photographs. Mm. Um, and John actually, John Hartman really does paint light was one of the joys of living with his painting is that he spends a lot of time thinking about light. And when I say think, he kind of thinks through painting. Um, and if you can sit with one of his paintings for a length of time, as I was lucky enough to be able to do, and really look at it, you realize that he has really engaged with the subject of light in a really really interesting, interesting way. He calls it a mystical process. A, yeah. A, an intensely mystical process, in fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because it, um, I guess, the more complex, at least the evidence before us, I mean, in Hartman's paintings and in your book likeness, the evidence is that the harder you look, the more you try to excavate whatever it is that's blocking that light to, to bring it out into quote the open the more effectively 
that uh, light is recaptured. I think you did it beautifully. Oh, well, thank you. I think, you know, we, one of the things about perceiving light, um, and Michael Pollan talks about this in um, his book, How to Change Your Mind, is that we, we sequence light so that for survival instincts, so, you know, so that we can see things like approaching tigers and, and stuff like that, you know. Um, we, we, we give it an order that allows us to function in the world, to survive, um, et cetera. And, um, but that may not at all reflect the, tr the true nature of, of light and the way that um, it manifests itself around us all the time. And I don't want, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too, um, um, you know, airy-fairy about it, but that's one of the things that um, psychedelic drugs do is that they open that order up so that the sequence that we impose on things is diffused and lost and then this whole other um, uh, manifestation um, appears. Anyway, that oh. was a little bit weird, but... <laughs> no, no, but it, so the... Acid is starting to kick in, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, you never really came down. The, 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 the window pane and the portrait are uh, aligned. That's right. I mean, the window pane acid is what I mean. And, and uh, ah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, uh, I can't tell you what a pleasure it was to read it and, and what a pleasure it is to, to talk to you. I, um, I think it was an act of bravery to do it that way uh, and to take on that, that huge, huge, huge subject. Um, and I think you succeeded uh, to the point of uh, where you should be thanked in public. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Great talking to you. That was Ian Brown in conversation with David McFarlane about his new book, Likeness, Fathers, Sons, A Portrait. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book. And of course, you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Our fall season kicks off in late August, and our entire spring season is available free online and on demand at writersfestival.org. So all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. The podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.